Well, good morning. It is great to be with you all. Uh, this is actually my first time at Wallenstein, uh, so good to be here. And uh, coming over from Elmira and from Citizens Church. And I don't know if you knew this. I'm not sure how many of you have made the connection. Citizens Church is a church plant out of Woodside, and Woodside is a church plant out of Wallenstein. So we are technically your grandchild, okay? Uh, which is fitting on this Mother's Day to be reminded of that. But it was about four years ago that the elders at Woodside uh, just began to sense a uh, that God was stirring within their midst, that they had so many resources, had so many people, and that God wanted to do something. They didn't know what that was. And so we began as a church on a about a two-year journey of just praying and seeking God's direction. We didn't know it was going to be a church plant. We didn't know what it was going to be. And through that, my wife Liz and I uh, got involved, and we um, went with about 40 people to plant Citizens Church right in Elmira. A little bit of a different focus to the church, but similar in terms of our theology and our understanding. And we started gathering, like, two weeks after the pandemic started. And uh, we were about to get started and this, you know, this whole COVID thing was coming. And then we were like, should we wait? Because we were going to have a big commissioning service and all that. Should we wait? And we were like, well, let's just start. COVID's probably going to be done in like a month and then we'll just move on. You know, it won't be a problem. And thankfully we did get going and just slowly have grown and God has just been good and gracious to us and just two weeks ago we had our two-year anniversary already and had the elders from Woodside come to commission new elders for Citizens Church so it was super exciting and something that I've always been passionate about about seeing the local church growing and I don't know if you knew this but in the next 10 years in Canada alone they're estimating that 9,000 churches will be closing. 9,000 churches. And so the local church is the, the trumpet, is God's hands and feet in local communities. So we need more and more gospel preaching local churches where people are putting their hands in and saying, I want to serve Christ in this way. So I just encourage you, it's in your DNA and history. You've done it in many, many times before. Um, and I just encourage you to keep considering how God wants to use Wallenstein to uh, encourage church planters or to plant more churches in the future. And we just want to say, uh, Citizens Church, thank you for the part that you played. And maybe some of you were um, here at Wallenstein 20, 30, 40 years ago when Woodside left, um, never knowing that uh, a group like Citizens Church would start. So thank you for the part that you have had to play. This morning, we're talking about the hot-button issue of technology. So before we do that, why don't you just join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for an opportunity to look at your word and to see what you have to say to the issue of technology. And Lord, I just pray for everyone that's here, for myself included, that we would be attentive and that our ears and our eyes would be open. But mostly, Lord, and 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Where it needs encouragement, may we receive it. May we need a word, where there's a word of rebuke or a word of correction, may we be willing to take that. And Lord, that's not something that I can do, and that's not even something that people can do. It's a work of the Spirit through our lives, and so I pray that you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. We are living in an interesting time, and we actually are living in an interesting place on this world. Wallenstein is like this, and Elmira also is this nexus of country living and the urban sprawl that is encroaching upon us that is filled with tech companies like Google and Facebook. They're all here. And so we live in this world where we share maybe a sanctuary. I know in our congregation, we have a number of people that work in the tech industry, and we have farmers too. So we're all in the same room on Sunday mornings. And we are living in an age of technology. I'm Generation X, which means I grew up, you know, in the late 70s, 80s, when technology was just coming around. We, nobody that I knew had like a computer in their house. Um, then, you know, going through elementary school and high school, in my school, there was like, I don't know, like three or four desktop computers that could play a few games and maybe had the Encyclopedia Britannica on them, like super basic. And then obviously now we live in this age where we are surrounded by tech. Probably many of us have a phone in our pocket or maybe you've got some sort of device on your wrist that's tracking your steps or giving you notifications. Tech is all around us. And it's not just the Western world. It's spreading around the world. My wife and I, with uh, New Tribes Mission or Ethnos Canada, we were church planters in West Africa. And when we left about 15 years ago, that was like, that was it. No contact with those people anymore because they, the Tanda people were way out in the bush. No cell service, nothing out there. Well, like about four or five weeks ago, I just got connected with some of the believers on, on WhatsApp. So now I'm like texting back and forth pictures and communicating back and forth with believers in West Africa. And they're like calling me at three and four in the morning, you know, trying to talk to me. And, you know, if you, I have my silent feature on so that if I get one call, it won't come through. But if you call three or four or five times, it eventually gets through, okay? And so they figured that out. So we live in this world of tech and it just keeps changing and moving forward and the, the benefits of tech are massive. Like we are enjoying some great advancements because of technology. We can take pictures and we can take videos with like extreme ease and you can capture these like special moments in your life. You can go to you know, the hospitals around, and there's, like, amazing technology that keeps you alive. And just recently, actually, I heard on the radio, they were saying um, financial planners need to be telling their customers to prepare to live to 100 years. So back in the day, it was like you retire at 65, and if you have a really long life, you might, like, live till 80 and you need to save up for that. Now they're like, hey, you need to save up for like 35 or 40 years of living. 
So, you know, be advised and save a lot. And so that is from technology and all the advancements, the things that we've learned and the things that we can apply to human living and human flourishing. But we also know, all of us know, that technology comes with a dark side as well. It comes with many traps, comes with a cost and a deep social cost. In the Atlantic, this article is actually kind of old. It's from 2017, but I've used it a few times. It's the, the article is called, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And it's specifically responding to, on the anniversary, it was the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone. So 2007 is like this cataclysmic shift in technology. It was the year that Apple released the iPhone, and that changed the world. And now all of us, most of us, walk around or at least know people who have a smartphone in their pocket. And so the article goes on to say this, rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. And, and now it's like, you just, you can look it up, look at the curve of the graph and you're like, this is unbelievable. Depression, suicide, like straight up line. And so it's partially connected to the introduction of the iPhone. It says this iGen generation is on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. Increased depression, suicide, YouTube wormholes, lost productivity. I mean, for a number of years, employers were trying to get their employees to stop playing video games and just do the work, be productive. All of these things, gambling now, conspiracy theories, I mean, cryptocurrency, like it's just all these new things keep coming. Technology is bringing all these things to us which come with a dark side. So I want to do two things this morning in the time that we have together. I want to just answer two questions. And the first question is this, is technology good or bad? This is a pretty basic question, okay? And you might think that you know the answer to that. That's great. You can follow along and see if you agree or disagree with me. But the second question that I want to answer is, how do we live with technology? It's here. It's not going away. The iPhone is not going to disappear next week, next year, or even in 50 years. It is here. It's only moving forward. So the question is, how do we live with this tech? So to answer that first question, is technology good or bad, we're going to go to the book of Genesis. Maybe an unlikely place to answer that question. But if you have a Bible, or possibly a smartphone with a Bible app on it, turn to Genesis chapter 6, okay? And we're going to start by reading two kind of larger passages, but we're going to look at two examples of technology and the difference between them. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 11, a very familiar story says this now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and God said to Noah I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them behold I will destroy them with the earth make yourself an ark of gopher wood Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, 
its breadth 50 cubits and its height 60 cubits, 30 cubits, sorry. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So here we have in Genesis 6, the world is filled with sin and brokenness. People within the world are turned away from God and his design for them and his plan for their lives. And so God steps into the human history, into the events that are happening. And God brings to the table a piece of technology. Maybe one that we kind of wouldn't think is technology. We think, when we think technology, we're thinking this thing, right? We're thinking a laptop. But into the story of Noah and into the actual history of redemption, God gets really specific with how to use technology. If you see on the text there, he's so specific that he's giving Noah directions and sizes of things for how to put together this engineering marvel, which we call an ark. I haven't been to the Creation Museum, but I think you can go see one that's kind of like a replica, right? It's it is a feat of engineering to put something like that together and Noah and his sons to do it by hand. And so God says, bring this tech into the world. Make it exist, Noah. Do the work. Turn a few pages over to Genesis chapter 11 where we'll see another piece of technology come into the world. Again, it might not be impressive to us, but it is tech. Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So here you have in this story, people coming together with their ingenuity, with their own ideas, and building a building, using technology to do something. The idea, though, is different than Noah's. 
This time, they're building something for their own purposes. They're building something for their own glory. The hope is that they build this thing and they can rise up to the heavens, kind of in that ancient way, get near to God and ultimately be God themselves. And God looks at what's happening around him and he sees this technology is not being used for good. This is a tech that's actually being used for evil and will take people down a road, down a path that is not going to provide flourishing and ultimately it's not going to bring glory to God. And so he takes this startup and shuts it down right on the spot. So here within a few chapters, you've got these two stories and it's kind of a small detail in the story, but both of them are actually accessing the same piece of technology, which is the tar that they're using. Noah's called to use the tar to seal up the ark, and these people are using the tar to hold these bricks together. And that very same technology, one is used for good, and one is used for evil. And God sees and is a part of both as they're happening and as they're brought into existence. You see, with technology comes with it the people that use it. And God has made clear in Scripture that people, that mankind, men and women, have a great capacity for doing wrong and for doing evil. We are broken people. We bring with ourselves the, the brokenness of our lives, which we call sin, which the Word of God calls sin. And in Romans, when Paul explains what sin is. He takes three chapters to kind of explain the depth of it, and how, how it goes into every crevice of life, whether you are, as Paul would say, a pagan or whether you're religious, it's there. It seeps in. And Paul says in Romans 1 that not only are we sinful and broken and that causes problems, but he says there's an, another element to it. We have such a capacity towards sin, such a bend, that we find new ways of making sin. Paul says we are able to create and devise new ways that other generations hadn't even thought of. We're able to like bring that to the scene. We're able to take elements of this world, gifts from God, and find new ways to sin. We have a massive capacity for that. And this is what we see playing out here in the two stories, Genesis 6 and Genesis 11. But on the other side is the amazing gift of technology to God's purposes and his purpose of redemption. Tony Ranke in his book puts it this way, what is God's relationship to human innovation and technology? The very question we're trying to answer here. In Noah, he commanded it. In the ark, God took human engineering and technology and wrote it into the grand story of redemption. But in Babel, God squashed it. In the face of human self-glory, he introduced the tensions that utterly thwarted human collaboration. What Tony is saying is there is a edge to technology. On one hand, it can be used for great evil in the world and cause all kinds of problems. But on the same, the, on the other side of it, it brings redemption. It brings change. It brings healing. Think of technology when it comes to missions. Missionaries used to have to literally like get onto a ship and go from like England to South America. It would take like weeks to go on a ship and sail over to this place, often leaving their land and their family knowing that they would never come back. And then the advent of the plane and the vehicle and the ability for missionaries to go and just like 
fly over somewhere within a matter of hours. Or you think of what the computer has done to language learning or Bible translation, work that even in the computer age takes decades, is now like sped up and has moved forward as you're able to like do this stuff on a computer and move it forward. People creating technology, people who aren't even Christians, creating these tools, not knowing that God is going to harness them to move forward his mission of redemption. That is the beauty of technology. And here in Genesis, we see that God is able to do that. God can use tech for good, and tech can also be used for evil. So what are we to do with technology then? It's here to stay. So the next question that we want to answer, and we'll take the rest of our time to look at this, is how are we to live with technology? It's here. How are we to walk with God and flourish as his people in the midst of this world of tech? And the way I want to handle this today is I want to place before us a fork in the road. Now, there's not a lot of roads like that here, but if you go on like trails or paths, you'll come to a place where you have to decide, do I go to the left or to the right? And you're hoping it's just a fork, right? And that it's not like five choices. Two choices, to the left or to the right. So for each of these areas, I want to look at a potential positive where tech can take us or a potential negative or even maybe where the answer is to have no tech at all. And the idea is that when these forks in the road come, we actually choose the way, the Word of God calls it, the way of wisdom or the wise way. Because we are creatures of habit. So we're going to talk about four forks in the road. And with each one, I want to give you a habit or a practice that you can put into your life so that more often than not, you are choosing and you are leaning into the way of wisdom. So whether you call it, I'm calling it a habit here, but you can call it a practice or you can call it a discipline. This is something that you put into practice in your life. And hear me clearly, this is not something that you put into practice so that God is happier with you. When you do these things that God is more pleased with you as a person, or maybe like people at Wallenstein will be more impressed with you. That, when you're a believer, you are secure in Christ. You are positioned in Jesus. That is the greatest gift of grace. But we are people of habits. And if we have the wrong habits in place, we will be actually pulled towards the things that God has not designed for us. I don't know if you realize this, but probably this morning, you followed the same pattern in getting ready for church that you always do. You combed your hair the same way. You probably even brushed your teeth the same way, starting with the same side of your mouth. We are creatures of habit. Duke University recently did a study on the habits of people, and they discovered that 40% of what people do, they do out of habit. They're not choices that they make. They're just things that they routinely do. So when I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is I just get up, and I'm just like automated to go over and make like a pot of coffee. That's the first thing I do. I just walk over pot of coffee on and then I sit down and then I'm kind of like slowly waking up. It's just done. Automatic. And this automation or this habit of life that you have is not something that's unique to this century or unique to us as people. It's in the Word of God itself. In 1 Timothy 
Paul is writing to this young elder and he is trying to encourage him. And 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 says this, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So Paul is telling Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, there's a fork in the road coming up for you. You are going to be pulled aside either by your own desires or by people in your congregation, in this case towards what Paul calls irreverent and silly myths. Paul says that's going to be a reality for you. That's a fork in the road that you're going to have to decide between. And so Paul says, your choice needs to be godliness, Timothy. That's the road that you need to choose. That is the road of wisdom. And what does Paul say? He says that doesn't just happen. You don't just naturally do that, Timothy. He says the way that you're going to get that is train yourself. Train yourself for godliness. Put into practice the truth of the gospel. Put into practice what it means to choose godliness over irreverent and silly myths. The fork in the road. So this morning, that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time. And, and what I want you to think about is not how this affects somebody else, okay? The first thing, when I'm thinking of a message like this that comes to my mind is, am I imparting what I should be imparting to my kids? Like, are they going to be able to do this choosing when it comes to the fork in the road? I'm of the age now. I, my daughter's at university, and I can still remember quite vividly dropping her off down in Hamilton as she was starting at McMaster, moving it moving her into student residence and just thinking like, oh man. Like literally on the drive home, I was like, did we do everything we were supposed to do? Like, did we tell her everything that she was supposed to know? Is she going to be able to still like hang on to her faith? And I'm like, I've read all the articles. I've read all the books. I don't know. Did we do it all? And you can get so worried about other people and, and it's good to do that. But with this topic, with technology, I want you for the rest of this time not to think about the kids, not to think about the teenagers, not to think about this as a problem for young adults. I want you to think about yourself. I want you to do analysis on your own life, on the wisdom, on the forks in the road that you and I are facing as we interact with technology. So the first of the four forks in the road is this one. Self-centered versus God-centered. We are born with a drive towards ourselves. And if you're, if I don't, you probably can't remember when you were a toddler, but that was like your number one pursuit as a toddler, okay? Yourself and your whole human flourishing. And so when you were a baby, when you were a toddler, that was like what you wanted. You wanted your way. And if you're parents were good. Hopefully they didn't give that to you all the time. But as we grow older, we subtly hide the fact that we still really want our own way. We're still really self-centered. We figure out ways as adults to kind of mask that, make it look like we don't just really want our own way. We're just like living life. But as you interact with technology what you discover, especially when it comes to things like uh, social media or YouTube or all these different things, you discover those things actually feed this self-centered drive that we have. 
this internal inertia towards ourselves is bumped forward by technology. So the apps that you download, the articles that you read, everything becomes curated and leans towards the things that you've previously watched, the good ones and the bad ones. The YouTube stream on the side becomes driven by the algorithm which shows you more videos of the ones that you watched and if they're cat videos and they're just more and more cat videos or whatever it is that you love it keeps feeding you all the while its goal like let, let's remember this I think we all know this but if we didn't know this let's remember the goal of these things the goal of this technology is to keep you using it that's what it wants keep you on YouTube keep you on Instagram to keep you on Facebook, wherever it is, so that you'll see more ads and the content of the people that you'll watch. They'll continue to get paid and revenue on the side. But here's the, here's the tricky thing, okay? It feels like we're just getting exactly what we want. It feels like in those moments, like that we're getting the very thing that we need when all it's doing is feeding the self, increasing the self. And ultimately, you can become immersed in, a, in this curated world that you have no idea is being curated right around you. And it is driving you at the fork in the road towards a self-centered view of life. James talked to his congregation, to the church that he's writing to, about a very similar thing. It's, it's not exactly the same, but it carries with it the same principle. In James 4.13, he says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James is reminding them, and he continues to remind us, that we are not the center of the universe. That God is the center. God is the focal point. And when we push our lives towards us, in this case, James is saying, they're just like speaking with a confidence about their own planning, about their, their vision for their lives. They're, James is like, you have it all mapped out. It's like you are the center. You are taking the place of God. And James says, I'm here to remind you that you will not live forever. You will be like a mist. Whether God gives you 20 years, whether he gives you 50 years, you will not be here forever. Because why? Because we are not God. So the fork in the road is before us to be driven towards a self-centered curated life or driven towards God. And the habit to develop with this is the habit of community, of gathering together with God's people to remind each other of who we are and who God is. It may be this time right here. It might be Sunday morning gathered in church, but it might be, and I would say that it should be even more than that. It should be gathered with God's people and whether it's Bible studies or small groups or other opportunities where you're together with other Christians. Hebrews 10 puts it this way. Hebrews 10 24. 
It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Now, I've often read that verse thinking, okay, that's just telling me to go to church on Sunday morning. And it kind of is saying that, but it's saying more than that, okay? It's saying, when you get together with God's people, when you're with them, there should be intention and purpose behind your gathering together. You're there to, as the writer of Hebrews says, you're there to stir each other up. You're there not just to talk about the weather, not just to talk about hockey, not just to talk about politics. You're there for a very specific purpose to stir each other up to, to love and good works, which is another way of saying to self-sacrifice, to love someone, to do good works, is to give of yourself, is to tell yourself, I'm not the center of the world. God is actually at the center. Now I'm willing to sacrifice things around my life for the good of others for the flourishing of this church and for the flourishing of the neighbors that I live beside and the people that I work with in my workplace is to think of the other. That's what we're supposed to do together. That's what we're called to be as a local church. So the habit of community. The second fork in the road is consumption versus creation. And I was... I don't normally do this, but I was going over this message with my daughter. I was, you know, just giving her the bullet points and trying to get some feedback from someone who's younger than I am. And she was like, oh, consumption and creation. I like that one. So I'm not sure why she liked it, but it was her favorite point, just so you know. We live in a world of consumption. And I'm not just talking food. I'm talking about content, where we are taking in all kinds of stuff, whether it's television or I don't know if people read magazines still. Taking in magazines or taking in videos online. It is a world of consumption. And we were called to, we were called to mirror God. God actually set for us an example in the act of creation. And God worked for six days creating and making things. And God says, your role now as people is to not just take in, but it's actually to enter into this act of creation, to, to work with your hands, to do something, to make something. Over Christmas, my, my kids and my wife, they got me a, a big, thick cookbook on how to make sourdough bread. Okay, sourdough bread is like the thing now. I think it like really took off during COVID when everybody was locked up at home making bread. And so I think my kids thought I should do something other than read books. And so they got me this cookbook, how to make bread, sourdough bread. And I don't know if you've ever made sourdough bread, but it's quite a process. You know, you got like the starter and then you got to grow this thing. It's going to be like living in your fridge and on your counter for a while. You got to feed it. It's like an animal, right? You got to feed this thing, keep it alive. And so the thing with creation is probably all of us do a little bit of consumption and creation at the same time where we, you know, maybe you've fixed something or maybe you've done something and you still use like a YouTube video to help you in that process. Well, that's what I did with this making this bread, okay? I was like, okay, I got all the instructions, you know, like the book is there, but I'm like, I need, I need a little bit more help. So I, I start watching this video, this chef from the New York Times, and she's kind of walking through the process of how to make this sourdough. So I got the book and I got the video. 
And halfway through the video, she's getting it going. She's doing all the folding. It's coming to life. It's, you know, it's growing. And she goes like this. She stops halfway through and she says, okay, we're going to pause. And we're just going to look at the miracle of this sourdough bread that is happening right in front of us. As she kind of shakes it and jiggles it like it's coming to life, right? And I literally, I paused the video. Now, I watched the video like 10 or 15 times because it took me a while, okay? But one of those times, I paused the video and I was like, she's having like a, a, like a church service right here. She just doesn't even know it. <laughs> she is like experiencing this gift that God gives to us as humans. And maybe you've had this before or you've built something, or you've put something together, or you've, maybe you've even made like a program. Somehow you enter into this act of creation, and on the way, God like fills you, and you experience something. That is the gift of creation that God has given to us as people to experience. And when we sit, and we just mindlessly consume, and we just take in content, Video after video, picture after picture, article after article, all consumption, just consumption, consumption. We get like little drips. We get little drips of what God has designed us to do. But when we enter into the act of creation and we mirror our maker, we experience something that we've been designed to experience, but we often don't anymore. It's the making of something. It's the creation. It's the enjoyment that comes with creation over just simply consumption. And the habit to develop this, which may surprise you, is actually the habit of Sabbath. Developing a habit of Sabbath. A day where you rest from the work. Now most of us, if you grew up in church culture, Sabbath just meant like, or at least in my household, it's like you don't do anything, right? You're not going to mow the lawn. If you got that done on Saturday or if you didn't, you're not going to do any of that. Anybody who's starting the lawn mower, you know, people are looking and stuff like that. This is the culture, right? But that's not what Sabbath is about. That's the Sabbath of religion. The Sabbath that God has given to us is one day where we pause and we rest from our work and we don't just stop working but we enter into our consciousness, into our mind, the fact that God is our creator. That God has given us all these gifts of life. And so we center it around often this, this time together. This is, this is part of Sabbath. It's coming together and thinking about God in, in unison with other brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's things like enjoying food with family and with friends. It's things like enjoying some rest. It, it may even mean doing some work because you love like gardening or you love fixing something. I don't know what it is. It's some sort of way where you are in tune with your creator and with your God. And I want to I say that I think we live in an age that it's really hard to do Sabbath and to do Sabbath well. To pause. The texts related to work the emails that just keep coming in, the project that just needs like, like 30 more minutes on it. It's so easy for us to grab our technology and to just push aside God's gift of Sabbath. 
And Andy Crouch, in his book, The TechWise Family, he talks about all kinds of ideas for how families can work with and kind of bring Sabbath and wisdom related to technology. He parses it out in three ways. He, he says it this way. Take one hour per day where you're actually putting into practice Sabbath. One hour where your phone is not near you or maybe your phone is not even on. And if you're like a parent here and you got little kids, you know, that window of dinner time and then bath time and trying to get the last giggles out of them time and then getting them tucked into bed and reading scripture to them, that, that's your moment, dads, where you're like, that phone is off. Where you're not sneaking in a quick check on what the lineup is for the Leafs game. You are, it's to the side and you are invested in that hour in what God has given to you. An hour of Sabbath a day. One day per week, Andy says. One day per week. Wow. Have you ever done that in the last year? One day per week with no tech? Maybe you have, I don't know. And then one week per year. Take that vacation week when you're going to the cottage, or maybe it's a few days and you're going away. I dare you, leave your phone behind. Just drop it somewhere. Get someone else to take the pictures. And in those moments of Sabbath, whether it's the one day a week, or whether it's the hour a day, or whether it's that vacation, don't just stop tech. Take in God's gifts to you. Put in the Word of God into your heart. The third fork in the road is a, a view of short-term versus long-term. Technology, the, one of the main points behind technology is it speeds things up for us. Kevin Kelly, who's the founder of Wired Magazine, writes this, the computer chip is the most energetically active thing in the whole universe. It is built for speed. It's built to give you answers quickly. I, I've never been good at math, but even this week I was doing a calculation. I didn't know what I was doing. So literally, this is what I did. What percentage, I'm typing into Google, what percentage is X number by X number, and boom, in like less than a second, the math was done for me. And I try to remember that, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13, those guys are like calculating, sending people to the moon with like a pencil and paper, okay? But today, we are made for speed. And so things that take long are not that attractive to us. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a seed. It's like something that you put into the ground, and you water, and sun comes out, and then weeks later, you got to do like weeding, or spraying of some sort, and then weeks later, and in ancient times, months pass by where you finally harvest it. And then you make that grain into, you pound it. It's like long process. That's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. Things that take long. So we are being trained for speed. And in many ways, we're thankful for technology speed. But God is saying, put your brain in the place of long-term work. Your growth in Christ will happen over years and decades not over days and weeks, let alone minutes or hours. Things take time in God's economy. And the, the habit to develop is the habit of stories. 
the ability for us to reflect and the ability for us to tell one another of God's goodness and what he has done. In Joshua chapter 4, God is telling Joshua, you've just seen something miraculous. You made it across the river. Besides the fact of all the miracles in Egypt 40 years earlier, and now he says this in Joshua 4, 6, take these rocks and put them in a pile, and it says that this, this pile of rocks, may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them what the, that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. God's saying, Joshua, tell your children these stories. Tell them about the faithfulness of God. When you're walking by this pile of rocks, Joshua, stop and have a picnic. Eat your food with your children and then tell them about something that happened 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. God's faithfulness. Give them a mind that can take in God's working over generations. And so we need to learn to be storytellers to pass from one generation to the next God's goodness to us. Number four, and the last one, is information versus transformation. I probably could have had a list of ten, but then we'd be here till one o'clock, but I just picked four, okay? And this last one, information versus transformation, is so appealing because we live in what we call the age of information. We love having in our pockets all the information that we need. I regularly watch movies with just like a phone ready to look up information in details, right? Like where was this movie made or where does this actor live? How much money do they have? I just like want to know this stuff. I'm not going to remember it. I just want to know it. Information. We're reminded in scripture that God is not solely interested in information. Information is important. We need to have it. But what God is interested in is in the transformation of your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So Paul's saying there's coming a day when we will be in God's glory. We will be, everything will be made right. There won't be any more tears. There won't be any more pains. Things will be made right. But up until that time, we're promised a incremental growth and transformation, what Paul and the scriptures also call sanctification, that slowly over time, God is going to change us. So the question is, are we just satisfied with information? Does one more article suffice? One more video explaining this. One more book telling me how to do that. Or am I willing to, in the moment, in the crux, when a, when a decision needs to be made, to actually act out to obedience in, to what Christ has actually shown me? That's transformation. You see, the Pharisees knew all these things about Jesus and they rejected him. And we can live the very same way. Will we be transformed? And how do we transform or 
let the Holy Spirit transform us. It is to develop the habit of reading Scripture. Develop the habit of getting the Word of God into our hearts. And my preference still is to actually have a printed Word of God. Because even this Friday, and this was not for a sermon illustration, but even on Friday, it was my day off, I was going to sit down and do some scripture reading, and I was actually going to try something different. I was going to listen to the Bible app as I'm following along, and it's reading. But as I'm doing that, like there was like a bunch of emails that were there, and there was like three or four different people texting me about stuff, and I got caught just kind of answering those, and then I was like, ooh, I just did it, right? It just got kind of sucked in, again, to just like productivity and doing stuff. So having the Word of God to hold, to read, to bring into your ears and into your heart is the fuel for God's transformation in your life. So collectively as a church, are you reading the scripture together here? At Citizens Church, they're just finishing this week the, our series on Habakkuk, and it was so great. Last week we had a family with a bunch of kids reading the text it was in chapter 2, so it's all the woes. You know, it was like heavy. They're like stumbling over the words and they're trying to read these things out. But corporately reading the Word of God together. As families around the dinner table or maybe in the evening, reading the text together. Or as an individual, taking time. And it may start really small. I was talking again to my daughter about this and she was like, Dad, I, I got my Bible with me. I want to read but I get like one verse and that's it. You know, it's like I've, I've maxed out and I'm like, that's okay. Start with one verse and work your way up from there. That may be you. You may be in the boat with her. You just have not cracked open the Bible in weeks and months. It's frustrating. It's hard to stay concentrated. Start with a couple of verses. Get it into your heart. Get it into your mind. The habit of scripture, the habit of stories, the habit of Sabbath, and the habit of community. All these things are given to you and I as gifts when we come to the fork in the road. And I'm not sure what your mindset is when it comes to technology, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. I tend to, honestly, I tend to be more like a pessimist. I, I see robots doing things. I see like robot dogs walking out in the woods and I'm like, this is not going to end well, you know? I'm like, I'm kind of nervous about this. I tend to be more of a pessimist, but I also trust in what God is doing. Tony Ranke, one more time, he says this, so I'm optimistic, he says, not optimistic in man, but in the God who governs every square inch of Silicon Valley. God is fully in control. And as we've been studying at Citizens in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1.5, it says this, God is speaking to Habakkuk the prophet who is wondering what is God doing around him. And God says this to him, Look among the nations and see, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. God is doing something in our age, in our age of technology. Will we continue to lean in and trust him as believers and take the road of wisdom so that we are not taken down by technology, but that God uses it in our lives and in the life of this world for his purposes of redemption? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this group that you have brought here. 
Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this church. And may we, as well, harness technology for your purposes, for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.